This morning's reading comes to us from Matthew 27, 50 to 61, from the voice translation. And then Jesus cried out once more loudly, and then he breathed his last. At that instant, the temple curtain was torn in half from top to bottom. The earth shook, rocks split in two, tombs burst open, and bodies of many sleeping holy women and men were raised up. After Jesus' resurrection, they came out of their tombs, went into the holy city of Jerusalem, and showed themselves to people. When the centurion and soldiers who had been charged with guarding Jesus felt the earthquake and saw the rocks splitting and the tombs opening, they were, of course, terrified. And they said, he really was God's son. A number of women who had been devoted to Jesus and followed him from Galilee were present, too, watching from a distance. Mary Magdalene was there, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. At evening time, a rich man from Arimathea arrived. His name was Joseph, and he had become a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked to be given Jesus' body. Pilate assented and ordered his servants to turn Jesus' body over to Joseph. So Joseph took the body, wrapped Jesus in a clean sheath of white linen, and laid Jesus in his own new tomb, which he had carved from a rock. Then he rolled a great stone in front of the tomb's opening, and he went away. Mary Magdalene was there, and so was the other Mary. They sat across from the tomb, watching, remembering. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I don't know how many of you are friends of mine on Facebook, so let's just get this little elephant out of the room right away, okay? Uh, a year ago, yesterday, I flew to Peoria for the very first time to interview for this job. So that was a year ago yesterday. And in that span of time, I have met someone that I have fallen in love with, and we are engaged to be married. <laughs> Thank you. So I thought since I got engaged to be married that uh, I ought to, and since I'm preaching on Joseph of Arimathea, I thought it'd be a good morning to talk about what does it mean to be a godly man? You can laugh, it's okay. Joseph of Arimathea's story is in all four Gospels, and each Gospel writer fills out that story just a little bit more. And even though it's recorded in all four Gospels, there's still so much that's left out of his story. And there's so many things that are really just unknowable. But there are a few things that we can uh, extrapolate. And so that this morning, I'd like to talk about that. Uh, just with a straightforward reading of these four Gospels, I can see that Joseph is wealthy. He's powerful because he is a member of the Sanhedrin, which is like the Jewish Supreme Court. And he is a Pharisee. We know he's a Pharisee because Joseph believed in a bodily resurrection and the Pharisees believed in that. The Sadducees did not. He was a secret follower of Jesus, most likely because of his position in the Sanhedrin. And he did not agree with the Sanhedrin's decision to crucify Jesus. And he paid for Jesus' burial. I can also surmise some things about uh, Joseph's character uh, so from these four Gospels, a list of attributes. I can see that jo Joseph is generous. He is brave. He is patient. 
He is meticulous. He is compassionate and he is loving. Joseph has taken on, as the Apostle Paul would later say, he's taken on the mind of Christ. He has followed the life and example of Jesus and he's emulating him. Joseph has learned the way of Christ and is living it out as a matter of his faith. Joseph is a man of God, embracing true biblical manhood. I found myself thinking this week about all the times that I've heard sermons on what it means to be a man of God or a biblical man. And in my world, I've been taught that to be a man of God, you must be a strong leader, fearless at taking charge, leader at work, leader in your home, protecting your wife and children from the worldly culture that we are surrounded by, to financially provide for his family, to be the spiritual leader of his homes. Now, these things are not all bad. Some of them are quite good. But for me, I learned that this is the primary work, primary work of a godly man, to be like Mel Gibson's portrayal of William Wallace in Braveheart. Y'all remember the book Wild at Heart by John Etheridge? Or in Kristen Dumay's book, Jesus and John Wayne, one of the primary works of a godly man is to be like John Wayne, rescu- rescuing the young, beautiful white woman who was in the clutches of the bad man, who in most cases was a man of color. To be a man of God, you had to be indoctrinated into what the famous evangelist Billy Sunday said. He described it as muscular masculinity, which was not, according to Sunday, a sissy, lily-livered piety. Billy Cindy would, Sunday would say that he was packing his old muzzle-loading gospel gun with Ipecac, buttermilk, rough-on rats, rock salt, and whatever else came in handy. I don't remember hearing many sermons about how a man of God should exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I don't think I ever heard one sermon about how Joseph of Arimathea is, is demonstrating in these four Gospels what a Jesus, Jesus follower should look like, what a biblical man should look like. Generous with his time and resources, his attention. How men who occupy spaces of privilege should lay aside their rights for the benefit of someone not as privileged as them. How a godly man should be patient, compassionate, brave, and loving. I also would like to say that I don't know how many times I've heard sermons, from all from men no less, about what it means to be a godly woman. I thought that was funny too, thank you. So I thought it might be a little bit of fun for me to preach on what it means to be a godly man this morning, especially since I am a woman. And having thrown that out there, allow me just a couple of minutes to demonstrate through a story Uh, that happened to me a few weeks ago, what muscular masculinity looks like. So two or three weeks ago, I I went with uh, Terry to a family reunion of sorts uh, somewhere in Illinois. I don't know if it was north, south. I don't know where. It was a long way away, and that's all I really know. A lot of corn, a lot of corn. (laughs) And he told me, now I haven't seen this part of my family in many, many years, but I do know that they are very... uh, they're, they're, they're more conservative, and that's my world. That's the world I come from, so I thought, easy peasy, I have this. I got this. So Terry's introducing me to his cousins. A lot of them are pastors, and uh, he introduces me. He tells them that, that, I'm a, that I'm a pastor too, and 
I, I saw the look. I don't think he noticed it that much, but I, I noticed the look in their eye. And so just as soon as he exits stage left, here they come. So this one guy who was a youth minister, he's like, so you're a, you're, you're a pastor. Uh-huh. So you like work with the youth or children or music? No. I'm pastor congregation. Oh, okay. But is there a, 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 a senior pastor that's over you? You're like an associate or something? No, I have a co-pastor. Oh, so he's a guy. Yes. So he kind of is over you. I went, no, we are co-pastors. We have equal authority. And I hate that word. It's an ugly word, but it is what it is. So do you have an elder board that's over you? Not, not really. We have a leadership team that functions as an elder board. But, and then he was like, so they tell you what to do. And I was like, not really. I, I mean, we, we're more collaborative. We work together to get things done for the church. Oh. And then he says, well, you do know there are scriptures in the Bible. And I'm like, oh, dear Jesus, help me. I'm thinking, fix this, Jesus. Fix it. Thankfully for me, someone came and interrupted the conversation. So I didn't have to get all fired up over that. It wasn't worth it. That's some muscular masculinity right there. In some circles of Christianity, this muscular masculinity is still very much the dominant theme of male-female relationships, where soft patriarchy or complementarianism is considered the model for godly marriages and homes. Kristen Dumais says in her book, Jesus and John Wayne, that the myths of masculinity are bravery, strength, stoicism, and insatiable sex drive, and a preoccupation with achievement. Why does she call these myths? Because no man can embody all of those things at all times. Likewise, author Gary Oliver says that gentleness, compassion, tenderness, meekness, sensitivity are not essentially feminine characteristics, but rather healthy human ones. Traits modeled by Christ himself. But this kind of muscular masculinity that latches onto these myths of being a real man does not embrace these characteristics. I spent years feeling like a failure, somewhat of a failure in my own home because I was really the spiritual leader of our home. Even though the, my children's father was a, was a minister, and he, we heard from the pulpit all the time about how the man is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home. I knew that if the, my children got any spiritual direction, it was going to have to come from me. It wasn't going to come from him. So somebody had to do it. Someone had to step up to the plate and do it. And I did it. But I certainly didn't tell people I was doing it, even though I suspect most of the women in my circles were probably doing it too. But there came a moment in my 30s where I thought, you know, it doesn't make much sense for God to consider that this is a really big deal that I was actually doing the work of spiritual leading in her home. Like, would God consider my work of spiritual headship in my home as invalid because I lacked the wrong sexual equipment? Surely God was delighted that our children were being led into a relationship with Christ. So Joseph of Arimathea, this disciple of Jesus, what does he teach us about biblical manhood? 
In Matthew, we find out that he's rich, he's become a disciple of Jesus, and he asks Pilate for the body of Jesus after his death. He wraps Jesus in fine linen and places him in his own family's burial ground in the rock, which no one else was occupying or had occupied. In Mark, he was a member of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin, but he was also a believer anxiously awaiting the kingdom of God. In Luke, he strongly disagreed with the council's decision to crucify Jesus. And in John, he was a secret follower of Jesus. And John also tells us that Nicodemus was there too at the end, who once secretly followed Jesus. He helped Joseph with the burial. And Nicodemus brought a hundred pounds of myrrh and ointments for the burial. And that the two men prepared his body for burial. Joseph of Arimathea was a powerful man. Craig Keener says he had to have have been prominent to have secured an audience with Pilate after his official public hours. Joseph had some clout, or Pilate would have had his sermons to say, go away. Joseph was powerful and wealthy, and Joseph leveraged both of those privileges for someone who would never be able to pay him, repay him. Joseph was generous. He had been a secret follower of Jesus, but by going to Pilate, his faith is no longer a secret. That was risky. He could not have known what his peers might think or might even do to him for this public act. It was his bunch, the Sanhedrin, that okayed the process that led to Jesus' crucifixion. The Bible doesn't tell us if Joseph spoke up in that moment when they made this decision. As a matter of fact, a lot of commentaries that I read believe this was a type of kangaroo court that Joseph probably wasn't even present for when the decision was made. Kind of a mob rule. But he spoke up and he asked Pilate for the body. Joseph was brave. Crucifixion victims did not get buried in a private grave. In the case of treason, which Jesus was guilty of for claiming to be a Jewish king, their families were not even allowed to retrieve them for burial. They were normally thrown into common graves. Jesus, Joseph was kind and he was loving. Jesus' family could not have buried him in this type of grave anyway, even if there was no treason charge because of the expense of it, because Jesus was poor. They certainly could not have afforded a fine linen shroud to wrap him in. Joseph was compassionate and merciful and generous. In the Matthew text that Sue read earlier, I hope that you were able to latch on to verse 61 in the Matthew text. Mary Magdalene was there and so was the other Mary. They sat across from the tomb watching, remembering. I do love that the gospels say that the, women's are the, one, the women are the ones who think about things, who ponder, who watch and remember. Were Mary, and Mar- were Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, were they watching Joseph and wondering, who is this man? John tells us that Joseph was a secret follower. And by secret, he most likely was not public in any way, not even with the other followers, because it would have been too risky. Had he heard the stories of how Jesus loved and healed and forgave, how he helped Were they watching with eyes bugged out at how this prominent man, this man's own group, the Sanhedrin, condemned Jesus to die? Were they watching the tender way that Joseph was taking care of Jesus' body? Did they see the grief and compassion in his eyes, just like their own eyes? 
were they astonished that someone so much more privileged than them and Jesus would risk so much for nothing in return. When they watched Joseph cleaning this body of the blood and the spit and the sweat, were they remembering when Jesus told them, greater love hath no man than this, than a man that lay down his life for his friends. Or in the message translation, this is my command, love one another the way I loved you. This is the very best way to live. Put your life on the line for your friends. You are my friends when you do the things that I command you. Did they remember that only a day or so later that Jesus tells them, hey, in a few days you won't see me again? Mary, Mary and Mary could not have understood it at that time, but were they remembering then? As they watched Joseph lay down his whole self, possibly giving up everything of privilege in his life, his authority, his prestige, his money, his power, because of love for his friend Jesus. Were they watching and thinking that this is what it means to be a, go- a man, a godly man, to be a servant, to be generous and brave and compassionate and loving and kind and merciful? Were they remembering Jesus' words, or rather were they remembering the words that Jesus never said about men, Okay, men, be tough. Storm those castle gates. Never show fear or tears. Take the hill, even if you have to die on it. Always have the final say in your marriages. Make sure you choose a Proverbs 31 woman for your wife. Or men get married, period. I mean, Jesus wasn't married. Didn't seem to be too worried about that kind of thing. Were Mary and Martha thinking, Jesus never said to emulate John Wayne or William Wallace. Jesus told us to do unto others as we would have them do to us. Jesus told us to lavishly forgive people, to help those who don't have it as good as we do, to invite everyone into the kingdom of God, even the tax collectors and the prostitutes, to love children and not harm them, to treat women with dignity and worth. Perhaps they were watching Joseph and thought, here is a model for all of us, not just a model for men to follow, but for us too. After all, Jesus didn't get all tore up over what it means to be a biblical woman or a biblical man. Jesus just said, follow me. What if we would just encourage people to be people who live lives that bring them happiness and joy, fulfillment? Maybe encourage people to live lives that benefit others, especially those less fortunate than themselves. Do unto others. What if we encourage people not to worry so much about a prescribed gender role for themselves, but to just be followers of Jesus. A few weeks ago, I was in a coffee shop working on a sermon, and I was listening to two guys, and uh, one of them was obviously the guy's pastor. And the, and, and the guy was, I guess his marriage was falling apart, and so they were right next to me. I mean, I, I couldn't help but hear overhear the conversation. I, it, it was just there. You would have listened to, I promise. So in that moment, the guy's like, you know, she wants a divorce, she wants out, I don't know what to do. And the pastor's like, it's time to be a man. It's time to man up. Get that girl back. Do what you got to do. Man up. Maybe he just should have encouraged him, hey, why don't you try being like Christ and see how that works? Compassionate, 
kind, gentle, loving, forgiving toward his wife? What if we encourage people to not worry so much about a prescribed gender role, but just to be followers of Jesus, just like Joseph of Arimathea was?